Hi, my name is Jeff Redding. I'm a preaching elder here at Walton Community Church in Monroe, Georgia. Before we begin the sermon, our church would like to invite you to join us as we gather every Sunday morning for worship at 10 a.m. You can learn more about our church on our website at waltoncommunitychurch.org. Thanks for listening. All right, thank you, George. Howdy, WCC. It's good to see everybody. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5. And I have to confess, I'm still laughing about Peter from John 21. Man, he says, man, I'm going fishing. I'm just, I'm out of here. I'm going fishing. I don't know why that strikes me as funny. All right, Hebrews 5, we're continuing our sermon series through the book of Hebrews. And today we're going to be looking at Jesus as our great high priest. So the title of my sermon is, is called this, and we'll talk about it, Obedience Through Suffering. Obedience Through Suffering. And as a reminder, the theme of Hebrews is this, that, that real faith, saving faith in Jesus Christ is a persevering faith. So we're encouraged to hold fast to Jesus no matter what. And so the author, he's writing to a group of Jewish Christians, and they've put their faith in Jesus, but now they're being tempted to go back to Judaism. They're tempted to go back to the Old Testament temple, the, the sacrificial system, the Old Testament priesthood, all that. And the writer is warning them, you better not turn away from Jesus. You better not go back to the old covenant because if you turn away from Jesus, you're turning away from God. And now the writer is transitioning from the end of Hebrews 4 into chapter 5, and he's talking about Jesus being our great high priest, which would have meant a lot to these Jewish Christians. And the writer is saying also, you better not go back again to, to the high priest in the temple. The temple is still standing. You better not go back to the high priest because Jesus is the fulfillment of that. He, he is our great high priest. And so that's what we're going to be looking at in Hebrews 5. We're going to be looking at verses 1 to 10. I'm actually going to start in Hebrews 4, 14 to give us the context. So let's do that, and then we'll read through the passage, and then we'll walk through it verse by verse. So let's start with Hebrews 4, verse 14, and I'm going to read through Hebrews 5, verse 10. All right, Hebrews 4, 14. It says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And then this is Hebrews 5, verse 1, this is what we're going to be talking about this morning. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes his honor for himself but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of 
of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Okay, so in this passage, the writer, again, is talking about Jesus being our high priest. And let me kind of lay out the order here. What he's doing in verses 1 to 4 is just giving a general explanation of what a high priest is. Just a general description of the office of, of high priest, how the high priest works. So that's what he, so let's look at verse 1. He says, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to, be, to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. We've talked about this before, but it's a good reminder. A priest represents God's people. So a priest stands before the Lord. It's like he's facing the Lord, and it's like he's representing the people. It's like the people are behind him. So he's facing God. And a priest is, so the priest is a representative of the people. That's what it says here. It says every high priest is appointed to act on behalf of men. So he's a representative of the people in relation to God. Okay? So he comes before God. It also says he's chosen from among men. Because the high priest is a representative of God's people, he must be chosen from the people. Just like, you know, if we have a member of Congress today, the representative, he or she represents the people in the district. So congressional representatives, they come from the people, they represent the people, the high priest does the same thing, he represents the people. And then what is the high priest's job? Well, the passage tells us. It says to offer gifts to God and offer sacrifices for sin. So again, he represents the people and he leads in the worship of God. In the old covenant, the act of worship was offering gifts to God and offering sacrifices for sin. So the high priest would come into the temple or into the tabernacle in the days of Moses. He would come before God and one of the things he would do was to offer a sacrifice. He would kill an animal as a sacrifice for sins. And the point of this, again, we've talked about it, so I'm not going to go into detail, but the point of this was to bring about reconciliation with God. It, it, in fact, it, it, it uses that phrase in verse 1. If you look at that phrase in verse 1, in relation to God, this is talking about our relationship to God. Because between us and God, there is this barrier. It's the barrier of sin. So we have a problem because we cannot be in close fellowship with God because of our sin. God is holy, and we are not. And for us to be in a loving relationship with God, with a holy God, our sin has to be taken care of. So we've got to get rid of the sin problem because it's this barrier between us. And that was the whole point of the Old Testament sacrificial system. It was a picture. We see that the blood of bulls and goats can't take away sin. But it was a picture looking forward to a high priest, Jesus, offering the sacrifice of his own life to take care of this sin. So that's what the high priest would do. The high priest would lead in worship, offering these gifts to God, like gifts of worship and prayer, and he would offer sacrifices for sins to deal with the sins of the people. So the writer's, again, he's continuing just generally talking about the high priest. We come to verses 2 and 3, and it says this, The high priest can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. So the high priest is taken from among men, and he is a weak human being. It's like all of us. He's limited. He's frail. He's also sinful, as it says in verse 3. Because the high priest is sinful, he's obligated to offer sacrifices 
for himself, and that's what they did in the Old Covenant, he would have to offer a sacrifice for himself and his family before offering sacrifices on behalf of the people. All right, verse 2, again it says, he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. In other words, a high priest, because of his weaknesses, because of his frailty, he knows what it's like to be a weak human. He, he understands what it's like to have a lack of love for God, a lack of love for other people. And because the high priest knows what it's like to deal with all these weaknesses and limitations in his own frailty, he understands what people are going through. He understands the weaknesses and limitations that people are going through. That's why he can deal gently with people. All right, verse 4. It says, And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So, Aaron was the first high priest, brother of Moses. He, Aaron did not appoint himself to be high priest. God appointed him. So, the, again, this is just a general description of high priests. High priests don't appoint themselves. They're appointed by God. God is the one who decides who's going to be high priest. So there wasn't a vote. Okay? The high priest didn't go out and campaign for office and generate votes. The, the high priest is called by God. Okay? All right, so that's verses 1 to 4, and they, again, these are general truths about the office of high priest. Now, in verses 5 and 6, the writer transitions, and now he's going to start talking about Jesus' appointment as high priest. And there are similarities and differences sort of apply, that are implied in the text. But what we see from the, from the get-go is that Christ did not exalt himself. He, he was appointed by God the Father. He was appointed by God the Father to be our eternal high priest. And that's what it's saying in verses 5 and 6. So let's look at it again. It says, verse 5, so also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said, by God the Father who said to, to him, to Jesus, you are my son, today I have begotten you. That's, that's an Old Testament text. And then verse 6, as, as he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So these are quotes from Psalm 2 and Psalm 110, and these are proclamations from God the Father to God the Son. And so, so we've talked about this before, so I'm not going to go into a bunch of detail, but when the Father says to the Son, today I have begotten you, when the Father says this to Jesus, today I have begotten you, the begotten language is, is talking about the, just the relationship between the Father and the Son. So it's talking about this begotten relationship. The ancient creeds of the church, they talk about how the son was eternally begotten. So even though it says this quote from from Psalm 2, today I've begotten you, what the church has understood is this is talking about what we might call the eternal now or the eternal today of God. So the son is eternally begotten. It's just talking about the relationship between the father and son. The Nicene Creed has a great phrase, and it says this. I love it. It says, the Son was begotten, not made. The Son was begotten, not made, not created. So there was never a time when the Son did not exist. He's eternally begotten of the Father. All right. Then in verse 6, the Father is speaking to the Son again. This is a quote from Psalm 110. And the Father makes this proclamation. He says to Christ the Son, he says, you are a priest forever. So the Father says to the Son, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. If you look down at verse 10, it says something similar. It says Christ was designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. 
The writer's going to talk in detail later in the book about Melchizedek, so I'm not going to get into it all right now. But the important thing to remember is this order of priesthood, this order of Melchizedek, is an eternal priesthood. The, he, he's, Jesus is the eternal great high priest. His role of high priest was not for a limited time. In the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the priest, high priest was appointed. They did their job for a while, and then they died, and then a new one was appointed. But Jesus' priesthood is eternal. Jesus is the true high priest. He's the eternal heavenly high priest. All right, so that's verses 5 and 6. Now we come to verses 7 through 9. Okay, let's read verses 7 through 9. And it says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. All right, this is a deep passage. This is a tough passage, and there's a lot in here, and I want to take our time. But first, let me address something in verse 9, that phrase, it says, and being made perfect. Let's talk about that for a second. It's being made perfect. This does not mean, and we can tell this by the context, this does not mean that Jesus was at one point sinful, and then he became holy. He wasn't sinful and then became sinless. It doesn't mean that at all. In fact, Jesus has always been without sin. He, he never has any sin in him. And, and you can see that in that passage in Hebrews 4.15. The writer says that Jesus was without sin. So Jesus has always been perfect in the sense of being perfectly sinless. So he's always been perfect. This is kind of random, but I don't know if you've seen those signs at churches that say no perfect people allowed. You ever seen There's a bunch of those around here. No perfect people Allowed. I know this is terrible, so don't be like me, okay? But my thought is when I see that no perfect people allowed, I'm like, does that mean Jesus is not allowed in your church? Say, so don't be like me, okay? That's terrible. Do not, do not think that. And if you have friends that go there, don't say that. But because Jesus is perfect, all right? He's perfectly sinless. But, but when it says here being made perfect, it means complete. It means complete. It means fulfilled. Sometimes we use language like this. It's a random thing, but I was, when I was in law school, we talked about a security interest, and it would be a perfected security interest. That means it went through all the steps. It was complete. It was fulfilled. And that's what, that's what we're talking about right here, that Jesus fulfilled all the steps to become high priest. He's complete. He did everything necessary. He fulfilled all the steps. So for Jesus to become our high priest, he had to complete the task before him. He went through all the steps necessary. He completed the course. He was made perfect, complete, in the path to become our high priest. Okay, so again, complete just means perfect. It means perfect, complete, he finished the course, all right? So Jesus, again, is appointed by the Father to be our eternal high priest. He became flesh. He became a man. He's been appointed to be our representative, and now in verses 7 to 9, the writer is asking this question. And I want you to really think about it. What was the path of Jesus' appointment to high priest? So he finished this path. He completed it. He's completed the path. But what kind of path did Jesus have to walk on his way to becoming high priest? And what we learn is, from this passage, we learn that his path was not this. It was not a path of increasing power and fame in his ministry. It was not a path of popularity. 
Jesus didn't campaign for the position and get a bunch of people rooting for him and then take over. It also wasn't a path of of force. He didn't raise up an army and then take over the role of high priest. So what was the path that the Father required of Jesus in order for him to become our high priest? What was the path the Father required? And what the writer is going to say is this, that the path Jesus had to take was a path of obedience and suffering. Obedience and suffering. Jesus was required to walk the road of obedience and and suffering. So let's look at verse 7. It says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who is able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. So it says, In the days of his flesh, that's Jesus' life on earth, from the time he was conceived until his death. Then it says, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who is able to save him from death death. In our Good Friday service, we thought about the suffering that Jesus went through. And I, my little part was I talked about Jesus's cries and tears in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is what is, is being referred to, I think, primarily. Jesus did live a life of sorrow, but I think primarily this passage is talking about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when he offered up loud cries and tears. He was praying to God in the Garden Jesus understood this. He understood that all the sins of God's people, past, present, and future, all the sins of those people throughout history, all that filth was going to be dumped on him on the cross. He knew that was coming. Also, Jesus was about to receive in himself the full wrath of God, the full fury of God as punishment for those sins. You can read about that in Isaiah 53. All that was coming upon Jesus, and in the garden, Jesus knows what he's about to deal with. So Jesus was about to receive in himself the full wrath of God that should have come to us, his people. He knew that was about to happen. He knew that he was about to endure the Father's wrath. And this is, this is the son who was constantly lived in close, loving fellowship with the Father. He knew that he was about to endure this. And by the way, think about how horrible it was for God the Father. The father was not enjoying this. The father has his beloved son watching him suffer. So the father suffered through this as well. All right. So it says, Jesus prayed to him who is able to save him from death. So Jesus prayed to God the father. The father was able to save him from death. I think a better way to understand this verse is this, that Jesus prayed to him who was able to save him from the realm of death or save him out of the realm of death. In other words, Jesus went into the realm of death. Jesus went in there, and the Father was able to save him out of that realm of death by raising him from the dead. That's what he did. That's what the Father did. And that's why it says Jesus was heard because of his reverence, his holy fear, his obedience. So when it says Jesus was heard, it means the Father heard Jesus' prayer, and he answered Jesus' prayer. But it doesn't mean the Father prevented Jesus from dying. Because Jesus had to die as a substitute for the sins of his people. But the Father answered Jesus' prayers by raising him from the realm of death, by saving him from the realm of death. All right, now we come to verse 8, and it says, Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. This is a tough one, right? Jesus learned obedience through suffering. What does that mean? This is actually a common Greek saying. It was this. It was learning comes by suffering. 
Learning comes by suffering. It was the little play on words. It was methane, pathane. Methane, pathane. It was like no pain, no gain, right? It was methane, pathane. Learning comes by suffering. And what the writer to the Hebrews is saying about Jesus, that's what he's saying about him. Methane, pathane. He learned obedience through suffering. Now, this doesn't mean, again, this needs clarification. It doesn't mean that Jesus went from being disobedient to now being obedient. As we talked about earlier, Jesus was without sin. He was always perfectly obedient. But when it says he learned obedience, it means this, as John Owen said, I sent this out in the email this week, that Jesus went through the experience of being obedient. This is how he learned obedience, by experience, by experiencing obedience. So prior to becoming a man, the son of God, he, he's, he's God. But prior to becoming a man, he knew everything. He knew including what obedience meant. So the, the learning is not about grasping some concept. The, the learning is about going through it. When Jesus became a man, he learned obedience through what he suffered. That means he gained the full experience as a human, of what it's like for a human to go through obedience and suffering as a man. He went through it. So as what this means is as Jesus grew up in his humanity, he experienced new stages of obedience he learned obedience at every stage of his life. He went from being a little baby to a toddler, boy, teenager, man. And he went through all this, and he had to be obedient. He had to learn obedience. He had to experience obedience at every stage of his life. And he had to do this for us as people to be saved. Jesus had to be perfectly righteous. He had to experience obedience at every stage of his life. Remember, Jesus is our great high priest. He's our representative. He has to represent us. And he achieved this representation, he achieved this perfect righteousness by going through perfect, by being perfectly obedient at every stage of his life. And as he went through this, Jesus' obedience was constantly challenged through his suffering. Now think about this in your own life. How do you respond when you suffer? When you suffer, what is your response when someone suffers, it's very difficult to remain loving and obedient to God, isn't it? It's extremely difficult. Our obedience is challenged when we suffer. But the amazing thing about Jesus is when he suffered, he did not become disobedient to the Father. When Jesus suffered, he responded to the suffering by drawing nearer to the Father, by offering up prayers, by living a life of obedience. This is how Jesus responded to suffering. Also, this, this amazes me the more I've thought about it. Jesus did not eliminate suffering by resorting to supernatural power. He could have gotten rid of his suffering by his supernatural power, but he didn't do that. In Matthew 26, this is in the Garden of Gethsemane. You may remember this account. Peter, pull, Peter pulls out a sword and cuts off the dude's ear. You remember that? He takes his dude and rips his ear off with the sword. And Jesus says, put away the sword. And Jesus said this, don't you know I can ask the Father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels. Jesus said, I could ask the Father right now, and he'd send me more than 70,000 angels right now to, to eliminate all this. But Jesus didn't do that because Jesus said, but then how should the scriptures be fulfilled? The scriptures had to be fulfilled. Jesus had to suffer and go to the cross. He could have eliminated that suffering through his supernatural power, but he didn't. He had to fulfill the scriptures. He had to fulfill every requirement that the Father gave him. So Jesus did not eliminate his suffering by resorting to supernatural power. 
Instead, during his entire life on earth, in the days of his flesh, he responded to suffering by drawing nearer to the Father in prayer, by offering up prayers and supplications, he says, with loud cries and tears. He responded to greater levels of suffering with greater levels of obedience. So he learned obedience, he experienced obedience through what he suffered. Last week, we, we looked at the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, the Shema has the greatest commandment. The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength, right? To love God with everything you've got, every second of the day. That's the greatest commandment. Do you do that? <laughs> do we love God every second of the day with everything we got? Nobody does that. But Jesus did that. He fulfilled that command. He loved the Father perfectly, and he obeyed the Father perfectly, again, from the time he was a little kid to the time when he was a man, through his death. And at every stage of his life, he experienced greater trials, greater levels of suffering, and he was required, and he did it, he was required to respond to this suffering, greater levels of obedience by constantly loving the Father with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is what Jesus did. And all this suffering culminated again in the Garden of Gethsemane and at the cross. So Jesus fulfilled all righteousness. He loved and obeyed the Father perfectly. Also, he didn't do it grudgingly. He did it from a pure heart. Sometimes we can obey and like, yeah, God, I'll obey, but, you know, I'm, I'm not happy about it. Jesus didn't do that. He obeyed with a pure heart. And this is the beauty of the gospel, really, because when we put our faith in Jesus, not only are our sins completely taken away from us because he died, he endured the wrath that should have come to us, our sins are taken away. But when you put your faith in Jesus, all his righteousness... All his beauty, all his goodness is now transferred to your account. It's credited to us. So if you put your faith in Jesus, you get credit for all his obedience. You get his righteousness, his obedience that he fulfilled through this suffering. And that means this, believer. And and when you think about this, this really should blow you away. When the Father sees you, when the Father looks at you, he sees Jesus' perfect righteousness. He sees Jesus' perfect love for the Father. That's what the Father sees when he looks at you. It's like being covered. The Bible talks about being clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. That's the way the Father sees you. It's the beauty of the gospel. So there's a sense in which if you say to God, God, look at all my sins, look at this filthy life, there's a sense in which the Father says, what are you talking about? I don't see any of that. I see the beauty of Jesus, my son, I see his holiness, his perfect righteousness of my beloved son. That's all I see in you. That's the good news of the gospel. Because of Jesus' experience of obedience through suffering, the father looks at you and all he sees is a person who has loved him perfectly every second of your life. That's what the father sees in you because he sees Jesus. This is what Jesus did for us. If you look at verse 9, that's what you'll see. It says, he, it says, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Obey him means the obedience of faith. The Bible talks about that. So by faith, Jesus became the source of eternal salvation. He's the source of our eternal salvation because he responded to suffering by offering perfect obedience, by offering perfect love to the Father. But again, the path Jesus had to take in experiencing these new stages of obedience It was a path through suffering. Your Savior suffered. It was the path he had to take 
He was abandoned. He was betrayed. He was humiliated. He was a man of sorrow. This was the path of obedience through suffering that he had to take. There was simply no other way. And one of the things this should do for us is this. When you're going through suffering, and many of you are going through suffering right now. Many of us are suffering. But when you think about the fact that Jesus willingly entered into our world of suffering, that means he he completely identifies with us in the midst of our suffering. He's been there. And he responded to suffering by being obedient through love. When we suffer, as I said, when we suffer, we usually respond with disobedience, don't we? We respond to to suffering by doubting, by getting angry, getting frustrated. That's usually how we respond to suffering, but not Jesus. Jesus responded to suffering by loving the Father and trusting the Father. Jesus responded to suffering by obedience and love. Suffering's hard, isn't it? Suffering is very difficult. And sometimes for us, it seems like the suffering won't end. Oftentimes, it seems like we suffer one thing and then it gets worse. And then there's another thing. We think we're finally finished with it and then it's another thing. And it's just wave after wave after wave. And you think it can't end. It can't be another one. It knocks you down. You get back up and it knocks you down again. And in the midst of that, our temptation, our natural response is this. Where's God? Where's God in this? We can think, I'm I'm here suffering, and God is far away from me. He's far away from my suffering. We think, where is God when I'm suffering? But then God answers us. He answers us, and he says, what are you talking about? What do you mean, where am I? The Lord Jesus says to us, listen, I willingly entered into your world of suffering. I took on flesh. I entered into that suffering. I walked into it. I lived in it. I wasn't separated from your suffering and misery. I entered into it. That's what Jesus says to us. He's gone through it. And here's the thing, too. Jesus did it willingly. He did it willingly. If you had the choice, honestly, if you had the choice between a life of carefree carefree life of pleasure, of nonstop fun, happiness, joy, never-ending, you could have that, or you could have... Suffering and pain and sadness and loneliness and despair. Which would you choose? (laughs) We'd all choose happiness. We wouldn't choose suffering. We'd all choose pleasure. We would not choose despair and agony and suffering. But the thing is, we don't have a choice. We don't get a choice. If we had a choice, we'd choose happiness. We would not choose suffering. But here's the thing. Jesus did have a choice. He had a choice. He could have chosen an eternity of pleasure with no suffering. He could have done that. But you know what the choice he made was? He chose suffering. He chose to enter into our pain. He chose to experience our agony. Why? Because of his love for us. This is Romans 5 8. God shows his love for us in this. How does God show his love for us? He he shows his love for us in this. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus suffered and died for us. Why? Because he loves us. So he could save us. So we could be with him forever. That's why he entered into our pain. So he could save us. So he could fulfill his role as our great high priest, as our representative before the Father. 
And Jesus experienced a level of sorrow and suffering that we will never comprehend. And I'm going to tell you why in a second. That he, he experienced a level of suffering that we will never comprehend. So Christian friend, when you're suffering, understand you have a sympathetic high priest who has gone through even worse. He knows what you're dealing with. He knows what you're dealing with and he cares. Something else to think about. And this is why Jesus' suffering was even worse. And I'm, I'm going to close with this. I'm almost done. When Jesus was in the garden preparing to go to the cross, he knew he was going to be raised from the dead, right? He knew the Father would save him from the realm of death. He knew that. But, and this is so huge, this is why Jesus' suffering is worse. He also knew that he was going to have to experience the full wrath of the Father. Jesus knew he would have to suffer punishment from his beloved Father. That's why it was worse for Jesus. He had to suffer the wrath of God the full fury of God, the judgment of God. He had to go through that suffering on the cross. Now listen to me, brother in Christ, sister in Christ, listen to me. You will never experience that judgment. You will never have to face the wrath of God. But Jesus did. He had to face it. He suffered. He suffered judgment. And he did it for you because he loves you. But Christian, you're never going to have to face God's wrath. In the life to come, all you're going to know is God's grace and love. That's all you're going to know. Grace and love and joy. And fellowship with him. And fellowship with your your brothers and sisters in Christ for eternity. That's all you're going to know. So listen, we'll still have to face death, right? Unless Jesus returns first, we're still going to have to cross over to the other side. We'll still have to cross the river of death before entering the heavenly city. We're going to have to do that. We're going to have to face death. But our Lord Jesus is going to be with us. He'll walk with us to the other side because we belong to him. So listen, believer, you'll close your eyes in death. You'll experience the sleep of death. Then you'll open your eyes and you'll see your Savior right there with you. And you will see the one who loves you, the one who suffered for you. And you will hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we love you and thank you for your word. I thank you, Lord, for this teaching on Jesus being our high priest. Uh, I pray that, that these truths, Jesus, about what you went through for us, the suffering you went through, it would really drive deep in our hearts. And that Jesus, when we are suffering, we're all going to suffer. Many of us are suffering right now. But I pray that we would remember that you've already suffered. You're with us. You're going to carry us through it. You've already been there. You know what it's like. And you've suffered even worse because you suffered from the wrath of the Father. And Father, thank you for sending your Son. Father, thank you for allowing your son to die in our place. I can't imagine sending my kid, any one of my children, to do what you did, Father. But you did it because you love us. And Jesus, you died and suffered because you love us. And you want us to be with you forever. So thank you for that truth. I pray our hearts would well up in praise. I pray that when we suffer, Lord, we would draw near to you. We wouldn't... We wouldn't complain like I know I have a tendency to do. I have a tendency to get frustrated and angry. I pray you'd forgive me for that. But I pray that when we suffer, we would draw near to you and rejoice because you've already been there. You know and you care about us. 
So, Lord, allow that truth just to sink down deep within us. We love you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.